this may have to be a two-parter. If it's a two-parter, you can hear me saying, it's the second half of this interminable episode. Okay, so skipping over the end paper. He knew he was destined for greatness, for he knew that one day he would inherit the kingdom from his father. I think this is interesting because it's implying that Jack effectively feels like entitled to being good at hockey. Entitled and also fated, which is an interesting combination. Well, it also goes back to this conversation that we were having previously about why is Jack so into hockey? There's some stuff about how he was touched in the head and just had like amazing hockey skills and ergo it was impossible for him not to play hockey. But then there's also the sort of power dynamic of father and son. Are you going to do this because you want to or are you going to do this because you feel like you must? My assumption would be that he's never thought about it. I'm also interested in the camera flashes on this page, which indicate that this narrative is playing out before a sort of gawking crowd. Speaking about that desire for catharsis, you could make the argument, although I don't think it's a particularly good one, that like denying the readership and Jack's story of anxiety is in fact making a point about privacy. I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's bad writing or flat writing. But I think you could, because this setup is speaking about the anxiety of the gaze, that Jack clearly feels. I think that that's like an argument to be potentially made. He doesn't seem bothered by it in this particular panel, but I do think that it becomes a plot thread for Jack that at a certain point is kind of dropped. You mentioned before the break that he comes out publicly and seems to have no anxiety about it. The thing that would probably give him anxiety about it would be that it's a public thing where there's a lot of speculation and people training their media lens on him. In this particular panel, he doesn't seem bothered by it, but he also is sort of protected by his father. This is so good. He knew he, for he knew that. It's, it's not that great writing, but there's something like really masterful and really great about the way that this is visually laid out. First of all, the helmet and the way that Bob is grasping a hockey stick and the fact that he is sort of clad in hockey gear mimics the visual language of like chivalry or knighthood, obviously an aspect of the social order in the medieval societies that fairy tales are based on. So that's amazing. The Stanley Cup is in some ways being framed like a chalice or like a grail or something. There's four of them here and they are being used in a way that I think is interesting. People have looked at this strip to sort of say, oh, three with the Canadians, one with the Pens. He must have won four trophies. I think this has more to do with like the way that the shot is being set up. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that banners in the background kind of double as both sort of medieval-like heralds, such as would be dropped as sigils from, say, like a castle walls or something, or would hang over, like, the jousting arena at medieval times or something. 
but they also pick up visual language of like a hockey arena where the people who are being feted or celebrated because they have done great things for the organization have, you know, tributes to them hanging over the ice. Bob is kind of cloaked in this knighthood type of language and he's leading his son by the hand, like almost into it, past all of these signifiers of his own glory. Given how early it comes in this story, and given the expectations for this medium, it's it's just really it's just really well done. I I really like it. We don't see Bad Bob's face, and later on when his shadow shows up, I guess we'll get there. But of course, you don't see his face then either. There's something quite interesting about that to me. Well, what we find out when she does draw him, like a couple strips from now, is that she's not that good at drawing middle-aged men. So this is a this is a smart this is a smart show actually. It's keeping you from thinking of him as a person. Well, this whole strip is playing an archetype, right? An archetype is not individual; it's aggregate. So he becomes this representation of hockey, of leadership, of disappointment and fear. He's not just bad Bob. All right. Next page. I want to agree about the writing. I think it's effective. I think it works just fine for the purposes. But without the imagery, it doesn't serve as strong a purpose. Yeah. The writing, not only is it sort of vague, I think, because it's working in conjunction with the images, it's also just, it's just not that good. Like, I genuinely, genuinely feel like she is an incredibly talented visual artist and storyboardist. She is not a good writer. I don't think she has a gift for language. And I don't think she has a gift for plotting. Maybe she does and it just ran out on this particular project. She certainly is very good at raising suspense and sort of playing a cat and mouse game with the audience, at least in the first stages of that game. It takes practice to plot and to find an ending which kind of ties together in a satisfying way the questions raised at the beginning of a work. I wonder what might have happened if this hadn't become her livelihood and she could have taken more time with it or there was less pressure on it to be a certain thing. But we'll never know. So let's look at Jack Zimmerman being worried in his bed. But the prince also had a secret. He was scared of failure, terrified of it. So completely frightened of not being as good a king as his father that he would stay up every night braced with the fear of mediocrity. I cannot imagine that being straight. Braced with the fear of mediocrity. That is a problem of such minor scale, especially given Jack's position. Terrified of mediocrity? Okay, relatable. I want to make a good podcast. Hope it's not mediocre. So completely frightened of not making a good podcast that I would stay up every night braced with the fear of mediocrity? Terrified of it? Although there's also, I mean, then there's the question of what kind of pressure is being put on this kid that isn't immediately clear. We don't know is the thing. Like, right. we, don't, we don't actually have any textual evidence that fucking Bob Zimmerman was like coming into his son's room and sitting on the side of his bed and pulling down the covers and saying, you better win tomorrow or you're going to be sorry. 
and then pulling the covers back up, quietly walking out of the room, slowly closing the door. Oh God. And in fact, I would say that there's not only no textual evidence of that, but but Bob seems to be smiling the times that we see him thus far. So, and he seems to be sort of tenderly cradling his son's hand in the previous panel, even if we don't see his face. So it doesn't seem like there is textual evidence, which is immediately putting him in the position of putting pressure on his son. And we do see some things from hockey news. So, and we see those camera flashes in the previous panel. So maybe there's an argument to be made that it's more sort of the culture in which he's being raised, especially because it's in a fairy tale. There's something here about not fulfilling one's role. And that certainly is in relationship with Jack's sexuality, which, you know, is question mark, question mark, question mark, but is at least not straight. There's something about suspecting that you're different in some way and not being able to articulate what that is or fear of being different in some way, not being able to articulate what that is, which is a somewhat common experience for sort of queer children who are in maybe not 100% accepting, like, you know, societies, families, whatever. And so... I don't know that he's like freaking out at night because he's gay. If he is gay, I think he's gay, but like, we'll never know because he never says. In fact, he's been known to say, I'm not gay. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But I do think that there's something which is queer related about the fear of not fulfilling the narrative that has been set up for you. And that's true, not only because of queer identity, of course it's true in other ways too, but I think there is something kind of pointing to a queer coming of age um, in that fear. I love that you're making this reading because for me, this panel was basically about anxiety. It's about his brain being miswired to the point that he's sitting in bed surrounded by dozens of his own awards and worrying that he's mediocre. I think it's also about that, but I think being a queer kid and anxiety go hand in hand. Oh, I think we're definitely talking about identifiable mental illness anxiety, but I also think that that is not uncommon in queer children. It's not what I was thinking about when I was looking at this strip, but I like that. I like that reading. Was this what you thought the first time you read this strip where you didn't have the benefit of another 90-something strips about Jack Zimmerman being gay to understand the subtext? Or was this identifiable to you the first time you saw it? I don't think it was that identifiable to me. I didn't even believe that, despite the teasing, I didn't believe that they would kiss because I had been burned so many times by so many media franchises that I didn't really believe it was going to happen, even though it was just like some random person's comic they were making. Uh, So I don't think I read it that way the first time around. I was just like, oh yeah, he's got anxiety relatable. That's so interesting because web comics are so gay. Like independent web comics. Actually, there's no such thing as a not independent web comic. Web comics are like a notoriously gay genre. I know, and I was really into gay web comics throughout my adolescence, but I still- Yeah, me too. Wait, which ones did you read? Do you remember My Life is Blue by Lauren Scullo? I do. I was really into Dylan Mechanist. Oh, we're going to be up until four in the morning, aren't we? Well, we were going to be up until four in the morning anyway. Why not? I read a bunch of little things that were dumb and stupid. And some of them I remember and some of them I don't. But there were just like endless numbers of web comics on things like Keen Space and like Keen Spot. Boy Meets Boy! 
I was a very, very, very dedicated reader of Boy Meets Boy and follow-up friendly hostility, other people's business, which crashed and burned and Sandra Delete, who became K. Sandra Fur, who became Stan Stanley. I cannot take any of that seriously. But at the time, I was so fucking obsessed with those comics. I was into Boy Meets Boy, but then when Friendly Hostility started, I like fucking lost it. (laughs) Boy Meets Boy is basically about like Biddy and Jack if they were much worse. Like, I mean, much better, honestly, but like (laughs) not drawn very well. Oh man, I used to, I used to like sneak onto my mother's computer and read it and then erase it because it was gay and I was like I can never let anyone know that I read this <laughs> erase well, it. I guess the difference between like me and you is that I would like print out strips of it and take it to school and like hand it out to people and like post it on my like I would like glue the comics to like my assignment notebook and like <laughs> be like, I'm really into this comic, let me show you. People would be like, okay. It's basically about like, what if Diddy had a goatee? (laughs) (laughs) This is making me want to reread it. I don't know. (laughs) No, do not. Mm -mm, No. Um, I don't know. We should talk about this off of the Check Please podcast. All I have to say is that, but like web comics were super gay. It was like one of the few places to like get gay content. So I can understand being burned because, yes, truly many of us have been burned in many different capacities, but webcomics truly are, like, not an industry where that happens very much. This didn't start as a graphic novel. It started as a webcomic. I know, but I, I mean, I can't tell you why I felt that way. I just did. I just didn't believe that it would really, I think it's because although I really enjoyed Friendly Hostility, like all these other things, and they were really eye-opening for me as a teenager, although I've been in a bunch of fandoms, mostly it's for things that are really mainstream and therefore like are never going to cater to me. But although I wasn't immediately fanish in the fanfic way for Check, Please. I was pretty fanish about it. Like, I got really excited about it. I talked about it to my friend. And I think the things that I tend to be fanish about, like, never cater to me and my taste. And so I think that's probably why I didn't really believe it would happen. Was it because I liked the comic so much? I just didn't trust that it would actually go away that I got, that I was really excited about. Uh, And then, joke's on me, it did and then it stopped. So, you know, continued the pattern. But at least Jack and Biddy kiss. I have to be engaging with the fandom for it to go from like, I'm a fan to like, I'm fanish about it. I think for me, it's a quality of enthusiasm about it. I think actually you're probably right. I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm fanish until I'm kind of engaged with fanfic. Like for me, fanish probably really does mean fanfic. I'm not as into fan art as you are, although I do like fan art. It's not usually something I seek out. Well, an interesting thing is that this fandom doesn't have a whole lot of good fan art. But there was something about the fervor that I felt and the sort of like way that I sent links to people and wanted to talk about it. Even though it wasn't transformative, it still felt different than the way that I was a fan of like, I don't know, Abigail Washburn and the Sparrow Quartet. Like, I'm a fan of that band. I follow Abigail Washburn's career. 
never in my life have I ever wanted to like talk to someone about Abigail Washburn's motivations the way that I wanted to talk about Biddy. You know? Well, just so you know, I pulled up the fan lore page for Fanish Community. Fanish Community is an amorphous thing, and many fans would give different definitions. It encompasses all of us. Fanish is a floating signifier. You want to talk more about Jack's anxiety, or do you want to talk about how it's like really a crime that Fox and Colin broke up? I was devastated when Fox and Colin broke up, actually. Yeah, I was angry. I was angry. I was not pleased about it. But you know what? She broke up with her girlfriend or whatever. So I guess about this later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about Jack Zimmerman and not talk about Colin becoming like maybe a dictator of a small South American country. I like that. I like that he followed through. Anyway, look, Jack's anxiety. The prince took a medication to calm his anxiety and he took more. But one day he took too much. The trophy where it says, and he slew trolls, is the QMHJL President's Cup. So the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. This is the trophy that the championship winner of that league gets. Uh, You know, like the person who wins the playoffs. This is different from the Memorial Cup, which is the cup that the winner of the Canadian Hockey League Memorial Cup tournament wins. The Memorial Cup is a round robin between a host team and the constituent leagues of the Canadian Hockey League, which are the Ontario Hockey League, the Western Hockey League, and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. You're fluent in French. How do you pronounce the name of the league in uh, French? Oh, man. Ligue de Hockey Junior Major de Québec. So that's how Jack would say it, probably. Well, he has a Canadian accent, and I have, like, an American-slash-fake French accent, so maybe a little different, but more or less. So the, the Q, as they often call it, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, or the Ligue de Hockey, etc., the logo of that organization is, is printed on the cup, where she changes it a little bit when she goes into the year one Kickstarter. She puts in some extra lines, so it's not a trademarked logo. Again, I think she probably would have been fine if she'd left it. And she also fucks a little bit with the logo on the shoulders of Jack's jersey. The Fanon is that... The team that Jack was on in the queue was Ramuski Oceanic. I think this strip is basically saying it's canon that he was on Ramuski Oceanic because he is wearing a Ramuski Oceanic jersey, literally. Like, I have looked at this very closely because I have been obsessed with it. If you zoom in, you will see that in the web version, the logo of the team that's on his shoulder is the very distinctive oceanic logo of a fucking ship that is also a shark (laughs) (laughs) yep and there's like it's like sailing through the waves uh ramuski is on the river so cool oceanic (laughs) the sort of blue color and the the kind of alternating blue pattern on the sleeves and the the sides of the jersey that that is all just literally the way that like the the number is written on the back it is all pretty plainly ramuski oceanic in the future it'll be a little vaguer she'll preserve the color scheme but she won't draw the draw the logo specifically, and she won't give as many details, I think because she realized that this would be published. It's very, very obvious that Jack played for Ramuski Oceanic, and it's also um, 
pretty obvious because that is the Q team that Sidney Crosby played for. It's often repeated that if you've played in the Q, you cannot then go on to play in the NCAA. That is correct because the NCAA does not allow professional athletes. What that means is anybody who's been paid for their participation in a major sports league. So the Canadian Hockey League, of which the Q is one of the three constituent leagues, is a major professional league. In the real world, if Jack Zimmerman were an actual person, he would not be able to come to Samwell and play for the hockey team unless he got some kind of a waiver, but that's way too much research. And I got to tell you, I don't even care about this. We had a conversation a couple episodes ago about whether or not it's realistic that somebody with Biddy's profile would end up on the Samwell men's hockey team. And the obvious answer is that like, yeah, no, obviously Biddy would never in real life end up on a hockey team. But what we talked about in that episode was that the kind of unrealism of it is what makes it fiction. It's like you're asking the question of, but what if this situation that never happens in real life happened in a situation that mirrored real life? She did admit at a certain point that it was a research oversight but it's also something that to me is really forgivable because you know what, if I didn't know that much about any of this when I started my project, why would I even think to ask that you couldn't go from playing one hockey league to playing on another hockey team? I don't care. I really have to say, I feel like there's so much to complain about in this comic. That is not one of the things that bothers me. I feel like, it's fiction. Things that can't happen in the real world happen in fiction. You have to make those concessions to tell a story. Otherwise, you're basically telling history. I understand that some people really know a lot about hockey, and this is something that they just cannot get over. I also think that's fine. And I actually think it's kind of interesting in terms of the power dynamic that I mentioned before. So I've gone from a major professional league to a non-professional amateur league. That's interesting in terms of style of play. And it's also interesting in terms of independence. If you take somebody who's already been good enough to play in like a professional sports league and then you put them on a college team, it's having a ringer. Like in the most blatant, obvious way. Jack is obviously way too good for the team he's on, the league he's in. But then the opposite is true as well, that after he's been out of like professional hockey for several years and then he goes into the NHL, he should be at that point out of practice and need some adjustment period. You know, you can start to talk about the things that the comic is ignoring, but this rule does exist for a reason. It's an equalizer effectively. And it's also because you can't get paid to play in the NCAA. Now, there's a lot of under the table stuff that happens in the NCAA, especially when it comes to football, which is its own big business. There's all sorts of ways in which compensation or other perks are traded to desirable NCAA athletes. can't get paid to play in the NCAA and you can get paid to play in the queue. It's not a lot of money. 
it's basically like a small stipend that's not a lot to live on, hence the building with families. It's basically going from being a paid hockey player to being an unpaid hockey player in an amateur league where you're all doing it for like sportsmanship and camaraderie and school spirit. A lot of Jack's story ends up being about the draft. So it's another like semester in the comic until the issue of the draft is raised. But this is basically the question of him being the number one prospect is raised in this like cover of hockey news in this strip. So it's like a little nod at it, but it's not really like solidified until later. The other thing in this panel is uh, the pill bottle. We see the pill bottle. We also see him before a mirror. And if you look at his left hand, we see what looks to be more pill bottles, at least a couple of them. And so we get this question of one day he took too much. And I'm curious actually what you think. Did he take too much on purpose or was it accidental? Can we know that in the text of this comic? In the text of this comic, I don't think we can know that. I think the question of what happened at the draft at the end of year two in Kiss the Ice is circling back to a question that has been within the fandom for a while at that point. And then again, in 419, Biddy makes a reference to Jack almost took his own life, which seems to imply that it was intentional. The question, of course, becomes, is that something that Biddy knows? Or is it a something Biddy is making based on information he's gathered about the situation? Or in the situation where he's saying it, is he just trying to like make the person he's talking to feel bad? That said, I think the person he's talking to would probably also know what had happened. So I feel like probably he's pulling on something that's like mutual knowledge in that situation. Having come into the fandom about four years ago in the spring of 2016, whatever I was looking at, the comic, the texts, the paratexts, the meta that people were creating at the time, the fix I was reading at the time, the conversations I started having with other people who read the comic, I definitely believed he was intentionally attempting to kill himself. A lot of people at this point became like amateur pharmacologists talking about, well, he's obviously taking this kind of pills and with this kind of pills, you can't do X, Y, and Z. There are some timelines that Ngozi has written as tweets or in a couple cases, extras on the blog that give a little more contextual information. I have a tweet that I saved from somebody's screen capping that's from like 2015, where somebody tweeted at her, what's the deal with Jack's overdose? And she basically says, yes, it's really hard to overdose on this kind of medication. So I guess you'll just have to wait to hear Jack explain it in the comic. And then he never does. I started out this whole conversation saying that I was really into the idea of whatever the darkest situation is. And the darkest situation is that he was trying to kill himself because he could not cope with all of 
the things going on in his life and in his brain. Sometimes people kill themselves, not necessarily because they're living a My Chemical Romance song and they think to themselves, oh, I want to die. Here is how I will do it. I am writing a note. Sometimes people are not totally sure what they're doing. And what's going on in the back of their minds is, I am so miserable. If this works, it works. If it kills me, it kills me. And they're not being totally deliberate, but they're not not trying to kill themselves. I also read this as a deliberate OD when I first read the comic. I kind of remember that tweet as well that you quoted in which he says, well, it's really hard to OD on this particular type of medication, which is I think I, how we all ended up in the sort of like benzodiazepine alcohol conversation, uh, which is real, by the way. Like that is a real problem if you are taking a medication like Xanax, should not drink alcohol because it weakens your heart and can lead to heart attacks. Jack mentions in a, you know, he mentions his own relationship to alcohol a little bit in a later comic. And so I think it's arguable that it's either accidental or a sort of suicidal recklessness or carelessness as opposed to a deliberate attempt with a plan that says, okay, now at the end of this, I will be dead. It could be a lack of care, which is caused by suicidality, I guess, for lack of a better word. Either of those are readable, but I definitely read it as an attempt to make whatever was going on stop. And whether that was through killing himself or through whatever means, that's how I read it. I don't read it as like, just took too many by accident and didn't think about it. For me, it was definitely wrapped up in that sense of anxiety and fear and inability to go on to the draft. I think the fact that we find out the context for this a bit later furthers that, but we don't find it out in the strip. We find out he has anxiety because the strip tells us explicitly. We find out later that he is very careful in his drinking and he's very careful in his access to parties and so on because they tend to be sort of trigger points for him and his anxiety. We find out that he went to a rehab center, which means at least while he was there, if it, it, I mean, it was a residential treatment facility, it looks like, which means he would have been in at least group therapy and most likely individual therapy as well while he was there. Although how long the stay was, we can't say, could be anywhere from a couple weeks to some months, not sure. Also, we don't know actually what he was in rehab for, whether it was because of substance abuse or whether it was treatment for his depression and anxiety. Like there's different kinds of residential treatment facilities and they're often all called rehab. And so it's hard to, it's hard to say. As it happens in the strip, we see him have some coping mechanisms or at least trying to deal with his anxiety in different ways, as we will see in coming strips. He has certain mechanisms that he uses in order to kind of calm down before a game or after a game. But we don't know very much about how he learned those mechanisms. I would assume in a therapeutic situation, whether in the rehab center or after, but we don't know, for example, if he has a therapist. And we also don't know whether he's taking medication at the time of the strip. And if he is taking medication, what it is, if it's the same type of medication that he took before or a different kind that maybe isn't a benzodiazepine. Although I don't know whether he is actually taking Xanax or whatever. These pills drawn here are not Xanaxes. So what's interesting is that when they're in the pill bottle, they look like my Xanax. I have taken Xanax when I fly for the past something like eight years at this point. So it's not something that I take all the time. So I can't tell you what it is to be on it consistently. 
but um, the ones that are in the pill bottle look like the ones that have been prescribed to me. The ones that are on the floor are blue and mine are not blue. So I don't know what to tell you about that. I've seen a lot of different kinds of psychiatric medication of different shapes and sizes. I'm not sure which ones the blue ones are supposed to be. To me, they don't point to any particular drug. They just kind of look like pills. Xanax is a brand name. There's also generics. The ones that I have are generic I also don't know if medicine is different in Canada or if there's a different manufacturer that makes like different style pills or if there's different regulations about like what size pills look like. I literally don't know anything about this. So I can't tell you. That said, if Ngozi didn't figure out that you can't go on and play in the NCAA after you play in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, I feel like it's highly likely that she didn't look into whether or not there are different sizes and shapes of medications in uh, Canada. Probably didn't research anxiety medication overdose. <laughs> like, that's my guess. I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions here. Maybe she did. I wouldn't if I were just like writing a fun comic for my friends. I don't know, actually, that I say that. If I put myself into like a normal person's shoes, I probably wouldn't. But I'm an obsessive researcher, so I probably would. But. Oh, yeah, I would. Please believe me. Like, I would. And I think a lot of people would. That's what I think a lot of people wouldn't. And I think most readers probably never would think about it. I do believe it is the case that it is really hard to overdose on benzos unless you are combining them with something else, notably alcohol, or you are taking like truly a lot of them in such a way that would indicate that Jack had access to an unlimited supply or had been deliberately hanging on to them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like in order to overdose on them. My best guess is that he drank alcohol and then took Xanax. Like that would be my my real guess, like, like a fair number of Xanax. There's questions about whether or not he is an addict or whether or not he was sort of less formally just abusing the medication or whether or not this is just a crazy situation that got out of hand and would not be replicated in the future. I understand that because this is so vague in the comic and there is so little about it, every single person in the fandom who is invested in this at all, which is a lot of people, comes at this issue with like their own bias and their own history and interprets it however they need. Maybe they interpret it differently if they want to write different fix with like different versions of background. I think that's also the kind of stuff that I play with when I make fan works. I definitely feel like I have a bias toward what I think happened or what I want to have happened because it's more interesting to me. Part of what makes Check Please such a good and interesting fandom to me for my purposes is that it gives you so much information and keeps it so purposely vague. You can spend hours and also years having a conversation about what Jack is and what Jack did. It just constantly reverses itself for any given discussion, any new canon any fan work you're trying to conceptualize. This is what makes this such a seductive fandom for me. The fact that you can just reread and reconfigure the information enough times because it's never conclusive. You're never cut off from possibilities. 
And then, of course, there's kind of like, you know, the aesthetic of it being dark and queer and sexy and whatever. But yeah, it's this is I mean, this is it. You know, this is what draws me to a fandom, this particular setup and the lack of true catharsis or true conclusion. I think that makes it weaker as a piece of art, but it makes great completely, completely addictive haha, as a fandom. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, I would go on and say, well, I don't know. The two fandoms that I've been active in are both fandoms that are like, well, there's a lot of material there, but it doesn't go anywhere. So you can just play and play and play with these details, configuring them and reconfiguring them and reconceptualizing how you want to interpret this series of information ceaselessly. That's the thing that makes a fandom really good. I know other people feel different ways, but that's the thing that draws me to check, please, as like a fanish location. I think my relationship to what makes fandom exciting for me has really changed over the past 15 years that I've been doing fandom. But now I, I agree that's a huge part of what makes me excited. I mean, I think sort of like the gaps in a canon are always what makes fandom really exciting. But I think these particular characters are so strong. I mean, they're so interesting. There's so much about them which gets introduced and sort of played with but never quite resolved. I think it would make it a stronger piece of art if those resolutions have come in a different way. I would probably have preferred it if they had come in a different way just for myself as a reader. But in terms of fandom, it's actually made really, really interesting arcs to examine and interpret, especially if, again, you kind of take what's on the page without looking at the tropes that they're pointing to, because then you end up with these kind of weird patterns that are just catnip to unpack. It's so intoxicating to be in Jack Zimmerman's head and not be able to figure out the answer because the answer never came. And the answer that is given is dissatisfying. And so what do you do? Well, then you, I mean, if you're me, you then try to start building like Watsonian understanding of how these things came together. This panel that says, and nearly lost everything with the bluish pills sort of scattered across the floor. I really like that panel. Me too. I just think it's well-designed. I think it's use of space is good. I think the blankness of the tile floor really heightens the story that's being told there. And Nearly Lost Everything is a gloss on the content of the panel. It's not a description. The Nearly Lost Everything comes after the scene that's being depicted in the panel. From the argument that this is a suicide attempt or that he possibly would have died. Yeah, I I mean, I guess the nearly lost everything includes his life in this case. To be clear, it is possible to overdose on something, including anxiety medication, without like passing out and ending up in the hospital. To end up in rehab, you have to like really overdose, not just like kind of pass out and wake up later feeling sort of off. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, I, I think the implication here is that yes, he he almost died. And I think Biddy confirms that in 419, that like he very much could have died. I think even just the visual language of the panel, I don't know. There's something about the way that the angles are not 
what they would actually be from like a sort of Renaissance perspective and the way that the pills scatter across the white floor. There's something really eerie and stark about it. The blankness is really important. It's also highly constructed in the sense that like, if you think out like what would have caused this scene, what he's like standing in the bathroom taking pills and taking pills and taking pills and taking pills and then he just like collapsed and like he was in the middle of taking pills and he dropped the pill bottle. But I don't care that it's constructed. It's fairy tale land, right? So I'm totally on board. No, I like it a lot. I think it's really good. It's just, you know, if you stare at it for long enough, you start to think about like, wait a minute. Yeah. Also that pill bottle is awful big for his hand. But anyway, I think we've got the kind of open question that we've been dancing around of does bad Bob really think of Jack as a disappointment? and how the image that's constructed in this comic juxtaposes with what we find out about Bob. Within the comic itself, there's no indication that Bob is actually an asshole. He seems like he's supportive of and kind to and genuinely loves his son. It's possible that before this happened, his attitude is different. But then there's also no evidence that that was the case either. So again, this is something that you can just basically endlessly extrapolate. But like Bob and the rest of the comic doesn't do anything dick at any point. He's just like a nice guy who is in four strips or something. I think it's certainly arguable that there's a story to be told about the family going to therapy or blah, 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 right? Well, people have told that story, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. It is unusual in my experience that simply going to family therapy because your kid tried to kill themselves would sufficiently change your attitude that you would then not say anything mean. But again, we only see him in four strips. It's totally arguable that he made the change or that he was always a nice guy. I mean, again, he's like a smiling knightly figure in the first panel. And that what really creates this sense of tension and disappointment is the constant media scrum in which Jack is being raised. Um, even though, you know, his father tries to protect him, he can't totally protect him, especially as he gets older. So I think there is an argument to be made as well that like maybe Bad Bob doesn't think of Jack as a disappointment but surely sports writers are writing about how Jack is a disappointment to Bad Bob. We don't have that set up yet about the draft. Will he be one or will he be two? So again, it circles back to the question of, did she not know she was going to invent that backstory or is she withholding it at this point because it's not relevant yet? Either could be true. My guess is it's the former, but either could be true. This is more setting up a general sense where Jack's anxiety and his compulsive drug taking are, and his overdose are linked not to a precipitating incident or a particular source of anxiety. It just seems to be something that he's living with. I mean, I think he has a brain whose neurotransmitters get reuptaken too quickly or whatever and has anxiety. I mean, that's, that would be my guess. I think that there are other factors which can exacerbate that and other factors which can turn something that might just be a personality trait into a really toxic situation. It's really hard to unpack 
what is biochemically inherent in a brain and what gets exacerbated by experience. This comic can't do it if science can't, you know? There was a live stream that Ngozi was doing in January 2019 that I attended and of course many other people attended where she made some comments about not having intentionally written certain characters with certain mental illnesses or behavioral issues that people like to headcanon or speculate about. And she was gracious saying, you know, it's fanon and people can write what they want to, but I didn't research those specific conditions and it's not there in the text. Some people in the fandom have extrapolated from that that she was retconning Jack's anxiety. I don't think that was the case. I think it was pretty clear from the context at the time and from the screenshots I copiously took because I'm insane that she was speaking about a particular headcanon for a different character and was not saying that she had never intended to write Jack with anxiety. He clearly has anxiety. And even though the way it's been treated more recently has been, uh, let's say, erroneous, and it has kind of fallen into the background, even up through year three, there will be panels where Jack is like shaking a little. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. So I think up until the comic really got to the fuck it, who cares, let's just jam this thing out and it stopped being as careful, I think it was trying to be implied that he experienced this. And it was something he lived with. And we can talk about this more when we get a few strips down. He does go to his dad for like advice about shit later on. So you get the idea that basically like, they're fine now. I think it's more interesting if they're not. In a realistic world or in a really good fanfic that treats this more seriously, maybe Jack's feelings about his father and his relationship with his father would improve overall, but I highly doubt they would ever realistically like go from like, why doesn't daddy love me to just like, I love my daddy. Uh, And then they're resolved and that's the end. But the implication within the comic seems to be like, they're fine now, everything's great. Certainly what we see is that Bad Bob seems to be like an unconditionally loving, supportive father. And that is just really interesting to me when paired with this strip in which maybe it's the sort of press or external narrative that is supporting that more than Bad Bob's own actions. But it's hard for me to believe that a child would fully believe a narrative about his own dad if there was nothing happening in his house that supported that narrative or made it readable into the system. Even if it's just something like a disconnect between parent and child. In the real world, somebody like Bob, who appears to have been playing hockey in Quebec starting in the mid-1970s when he was 18 years old and has spent his life around some of the most violent people in the world, treated like a god, seems highly unrealistic 
that this type of dude would be, you know, an amazing ally, let's say, or also that he would be understanding, like inherently, intuitively understanding about mental health issues. What's interesting to me about this is that in the real world, people's attitudes usually fall somewhere on a spectrum in between unequivocally understanding and loving and entirely hateful rejection. It's obviously not a story about bad Bob Zimmerman, although I have to be honest, I would enjoy that story very much. Please tell it. But somebody like this guy is supposed to be would have kind of a journey where maybe he would love his son and want to do the right thing and really struggle to figure out how to be that. Because the kind of person he is and the kind of person he was trained to be and the kind of person it was reinforced to him that it was good to be would not be the kind of person who would be a good father for Jackson Marin. I completely believe that this is a man who loves his son and most parents probably really want to love their children and be good parents. But parents are products of their own environment. And I think if this were a story with more nuance, it wouldn't be a narrative of, oh, Jack was afraid of his dad and thought he was like a mean dad, but then he found out he was a nice dad and now they love each other. It would be something with a little bit more like meat and a little bit more push and pull. I feel like Biddy's story with his dad gets a little closer to that, but we have many years to figure out how we want to handle that plot line. The prince would concoct a plan. He would venture back to the land of the queen. There he would reclaim greatness and thereby gain entrance to the kingdom. And all was going well until, of course... I actually found this strip so vague the first time I read it that I had to go on Tumblr and be like, what is she talking about? And I had to find other people having conversations about it because I could not figure out what she meant by go back to the land of the queen. I actually did not realize immediately that what it was saying was Jack's mother is American. He's going to go to college in America. And of course, it's not revealed until the end of year two that Jack's mother is a Samwell alumna. And also, we don't see her depicted until midway through year two, and we don't see her like fully depicted and actually like interacting in the comic until at the end of year two. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if she just hadn't thought about Jack's mother. I don't think we should talk that much about her at this point. This is indicative of a thing that Ngozi does, or at least seems to do, where she has somewhat elaborate or complete ideas about characters, or at least appears to, references it without ever giving away the whole story, and then moves on with the story without ever revealing everything. I think that's part of why I trusted her to be leading up to a reveal that then never came, because it seemed as though she had all these like very complete ideas, which she then would like, this is a, a gesture, if a, if a messy one, to something that is then revealed. The queen, the land of the queen. Okay, Alicia is a Samuel alumna, right? There's a setup and a reveal, which seems to foreshadow future reveals, which then don't come. In August 2014, somebody sent Ngozi an ask about whether or not he was 
a fat baby, which he was. And she writes, Jack's dad was a professional hockey player and Jack's mom was an actress slash model. More on this later. When I was going through like all of the check please backstory, like maniacally, when I was getting into it, I saw this thing about Jack's mom was an actress model, more on this later. And for whatever reason, I got the idea that it meant there would be more on it later. And then there wasn't. You know, I think possibly you can make a critique here about how very, very underdeveloped her female characters are. Possibly the most developed one is uh, Biddy's mother, but I don't want to get into that right now. This character is a complete cipher. We'll talk more about, like, hockey wives when we actually meet this woman and speculate a little bit about, like, what kind of actress model? What flavor weight loss gum? She's a narrative convenience, effectively, because she was a Samwell alumna. But then why? Who cares? What does it matter? Who gives a shit? Like, if all of this stuff about the land of the queen wasn't in this uh, comic and she wasn't a Samwell alumna, it would change nothing. So it's interesting backstory. And indeed, I've read a lot of really interesting works about Jack's mother. And I've had some fun speculating on, like, what kind of woman she would be, what her life experiences were. But it's, like, totally irrelevant. Relevant is the question of, um, why did he want to go to college? He could have gone back to the queue. You don't have to get drafted and leave the queue. I mean, I think most people who enter into it are probably hoping that will happen. But there are people who just keep playing in the queue or they keep playing in the queue and they get drafted and they don't end up in the NHL. For example, I did some research. Sidney Crosby's father, Troy Crosby, he played in the queue and was drafted by the Canadians and then never played for the Canadians. So there's no reason why Jack couldn't go back to the queue if he wanted to play hockey. That would probably be a quicker route into the NHL than what he did do. Or he could have played in an American league. There are plenty of not NHL leagues. Or he could have just waited a couple of years and entered into the NHL like as a free agent. Or he could have gone abroad and played in one of the many fine leagues in Europe. He obviously made a decision that he was specifically going to go to college. I don't know that the comic ever satisfies with an answer to this question. Seems like an awfully circuitous thing to do. Seems like if his ultimate goal was to play hockey in the NHL, he could have done it in a much better way. He wastes about six years of his prime playing years doing this. Now, I think it's evident that it was like better for him as a person and he's healthier and he like grows and whatever because he did this. But if his goal is to play in the fucking NHL, this was like the worst plan anybody has ever come up with. I will accept the guess that maybe he didn't know that actually when he started at Samwell. Like maybe this is only something he realized he wanted after he kept playing hockey for a while. But then this Hockey Prince comic basically says like, nope, this was his plan. I mean, there 
real answer, I think, is that Ngozi wanted to write a story about Samwell. In the text of the comic, I mean, the argument that I would make about this character and do make about this character is that hockey was unbearable if it was at all related to the world he had opted out of by dropping out of the draft, etc., and by trying to kill himself. So anything that was too professional, which includes European leagues, returning to the queue, any sort of like minor league in the US would be too close to the thing that was unbearable. Samwell, as a division one team, but not at a particularly strong hockey school, so it seems, allows him to re-engage with the sport, but doesn't require the same total dedication as a professional league would because he has to like, like most student athletes have to keep a particular GPA, like there is an expectation that you will spend time doing things other than the sport. And this is often enforced through things like study periods that are mandatory, mandatory tutoring, so on and so forth. For me, the argument is that he's finding a way to re-engage with hockey, which is not all consuming, even if it becomes all consuming or fairly consuming. And I also think there's something probably about having a backup plan. I wouldn't be surprised in a fic, at least. I mean, I don't think there's textual evidence for it, but if his parents were like, hey, bud, what if hockey doesn't work out? You're going to need a degree in order to make it in the world without a hockey stick. So why not go this route? And I could also see parents being very concerned that this thing that had led their child to suicide be the thing that he's focused on. And I could see making the argument that maybe his parents were like, hey, you should look at this other or other people in his life or whoever, like somebody might have been like, hey, Jack, try this other route so that, you know, if you find you don't want to go to the NHL, you have something else that you've done. This little shit came along. What does that mean? Benny doesn't actually pose a threat to Jack's plan, which works as intended. He ends up in the NHL and he wins a Stanley Cup his first year in the NHL. Biddy did not stop him from doing anything. So the idea that all was going well until this little shit came along, I don't know. I mean, was this setting up like some kind of plot that never really matured where Biddy's crappiness as a hockey player actually did impede the team's progress or Jack's? prospects? Or does this have to do with gayness somehow? The fact that they end up getting together derails something else Jack was planning on doing, like having sex with women. I frankly don't like to imagine Jack planning to do that. I do like to imagine Jack planning to do that very grimly and miserably as he just tells himself, this is what you do. Just get out there and uh, just do it and just like get through this. You know, just it's it's a team effort and next time I just went through an extended sort of like, you know, it's like everybody out on the ice who's involved and it's not just me, <laughs> but, but anyway, he would never say that. He would always think it's just him. Well, I don't think that this is that Biddy disrupts his hockey prowess particularly. I do think that Biddy has certainly been disrupting his hockey prowess by like fainting or whatever, but in the very next strip is called The Assist. So I don't think that this is like a hint that Biddy was like ever going to really mess things up for Samwell. But I do think that, especially if I'm now thinking about this anxiety page with him in his bed, like sort of freaking out about potentially 
in reference to his sexuality. Like, I do think there's something about Biddy disrupting Jack. What is it that horses wear that they can't see blinders? Like the sort of blinders that that Jack has on while he attempts to kind of get to the NHL. Seems at this point that relationships with others is not something that Jack is seeking as part of that journey, particularly. And so maybe that's what Biddy's disrupting. But we don't see that yet. That's another argument maybe that this is an authorial voice that's foreshadowing because from the perspective of the characters, that doesn't seem to be the case. But this is sort of like a wink at their coming, changing friendship and relationship. But again, Jack gets onto an NHL team when he wants to get onto an NHL team. He's a star player who's forefront in their promotional materials early on. He gets the A, like within a couple months. He wins the Stanley Cup. They publicly come out. There's no backlash. He doesn't have to address it. Literally, Biddy does not disrupt or derail anything about Jack's story in any way. In the actual strip that we're looking at, this serves as a bit of a punchline. So that's what it's doing narratively. And, you know, I definitely thought it was kind of fun. And I laughed the first time I saw it. Yeah, Uh, it is. It is, actually. I'm not saying it's like, this is not bad writing. It's just like, now that I'm overthinking these individual strips because I have to produce content in a podcast, it's like that panel with the spilled pills where it's like, realistically, he was what? Literally like standing up, just like taking pill, taking pill, taking pill, and then collapsed and dropped the pills everywhere. Like, that doesn't make any sense if you think about it. And it's the kind of thing where I guess it doesn't have to make sense because you want to know what? I have reread and reread and reread all of these strips for years and years and years, trying to mine them for little nuggets of gold that I could then solder into a fanfic or something. I didn't realize it until I had to think about it analytically like this. I guess it's the kind of thing that's not really noticeable. But yeah, in terms of like what's going to happen in this comic, it's like, yeah, you know, until this little shit came along and changed literally nothing about the trajectory for me that was set up in this narrative, which is that I'm going to college because I want to get into the NHL. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you in terms of like the narrative of what Jack does. I think for me, the way to read it, and I, I don't know that it's that strongly written, like the imagery is great. The punchline is funny enough. But again, I don't know that it's like the strongest writing on the planet. But I think for me, it is readable as an emotional thing. Biddy doesn't disrupt Jack's life in terms of disrupting his plan to get into the NHL. Although if one were to imagine that homophobia existed in this world, perhaps at this point, even if at later points it doesn't, it's possible that he could have or that this relationship could have been something for Jack to kind of figure out how to overcome. How do you have a secret relationship and try to become a public figure at the same time? Wouldn't it be interesting if that was something the comic got into? Oh, sure would be. But, you know, we'll never find out what would have happened because because it doesn't. But I do think there's something about Jack as we see him in these first few strips where he's very emotionally closed off from other characters. He's antagonistic and he's disdainful of Biddy coming in and disrupting that. We haven't seen that in the text of the comic, but like, again, if you look at narrative tropes of like pigtail pulling, it's readable as a disruption of Jack's determination to sort of remain emotionless and just hockey robot his way to the NHL. Why did Jack stay in hockey? This is the thing that to me is the great unanswered question that 
people in the fandom don't really want to deal with, what kind of person would have this experience and then go back to hockey? To be clear, this is somebody for whom hockey drove them either to accidentally because of pressure mixed with anxiety, mixed with drug abuse, or intentionally because they decided their life wasn't worth living anymore if it was going to be like this, almost died because of hockey. The idea that he would go back to hockey is itself effectively suicidal. And now I obviously know that the ending of the comic is not that Jack succeeds in committing suicide or even that anything bad happens to him because you know what? Nothing bad does in the entire comic. Well, I guess one thing, but we don't know anything about that right now. It's basically like a form of self-harm. If this is the result you got and then you decide, no, I'm going to keep doing it. This is the thing that I have been digging at with Jack. What does it say about him that he wants more of this, that his attitude is not, oh, this was bad for me and harmful, but rather, oh, I failed the first time, I'd better try it again. Don't think it is something we can answer right this second, but that just contextualized for me why they'll never get a divorce. Because oh. Biddy, also somebody who fails at something and then keeps digging at it, endlessly trying to succeed. Here are two people who just go and go and go and go and go. Jack leans in. And Biddy does too, in a different way. And Jack hands him a small Lego figure of himself, uh, which I'll never get over. Anyway. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. Are you fucking kidding? That's going to be the next four-hour podcast that we do. Like that fucking strip. I think we're going to need basically 12 episodes to do parses one through three. If you thought the close reading of this strip was awful, (laughs) come back later. Now we know more about Jack Zimmerman. He's been an asshole up to this point. Do we feel like he's been pathologized to the extent that we can excuse it? At the time, I still thought he was an asshole. I was like, well, that's too bad, but he's still being a a real jerk. I don't remember what I thought about it. I mean, I was basically just like, what's going to happen next? Here's this destructo boy. Let's see. (laughs) Let's see where this goes. Um, (laughs) I didn't like Biddy when I initially read the comic. I don't know. I just basically, I was like hooked on Jack Zimmerman. I had no thoughts about Biddy when I read the comic. I was immediately hooked on Jack Zimmerman uh, as the antagonist. And then when we got this story, I got really interested in him, but I still thought he was an asshole. But that's fine with me. I read stories and write stories about assholes all the time. So that does not stop me from being obsessed with the character. It took until I realized that Biddy was also an asshole for me to get really interested in him. He is, yes. But of course he's not. Don't say those things. I'm sorry. How could I dare? Do you see what I mean about, like, the comic pathologizes Jack, like, immediately? It's like he he is an asshole, and then immediately the comic is like, but here's why. Where are we going next? What's next time? We are going to 1.7 assist with an exclamation point. Okay, whatever. All right, listen, listen. I don't think assist is as interesting as this. I feel like we don't get another interesting strip until after assist. So next time I think things will be pretty chill. (laughs) 
All right, everybody. Tomato, thanks for being here. Thank you for being here, Secret. If anybody has thoughts about Jack Zimmerman, send them our way. We're curious. We are intensely curious. This is a serious request. You can find us on Tumblr at checkdispleased.tumblr.com. Find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com. And on Tumblr, I'm Camillar, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R. All right, we're figuring out how to podcast, you guys. This has been great. Thank you so much for all of your patience. If you've been here for all one to three episodes that this turns into, see you for the assist. Bye. Bye.